What's up, guys? Welcome to the Pocket Coach Podcast. So this week, I have a treat. (laughs) So this amazing woman that I'm about to interview, and we're about to dive into some amazing things around anxiety, overwhelm, self-esteem. She graduated with a PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Nebraska in 2014. She has a big focus, as I mentioned, on anxiety, which is something that I'm so passionate about. She received a commendation for excellent performance uh, during her university studies, and she has a massive focus on cognitive behavioral therapy, cognitive processing therapy, prolonged exposure therapy, trauma focus. She's also been trained to be a medical, uh, sorry, a, a mental health clinician, as well as a psychological researcher. And one of my favorite things that I, I was reading is that she saved and rescued a stray dog. So that for me is a winner. <laughs> and, um, without further ado, I'd love to introduce Dr. Hayden Finch. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Awesome. So before I dive into anything uh, really juicy, I'd actually really love to ask about the story behind the stray dog because I've, I myself as well. I uh, found a stray dog when I was in Bali, and uh, it's, it's something that is actually quite close to my heart. So I'd love to actually yeah, hear about the story. Yeah, she's um, she's sweet. Hopefully she will be quiet while we're recording this. <laughs> um, she Yeah, so I found her. I was, um, I was actually in graduate school in Nebraska, and I was driving from um, one clinic to a research meeting, and I saw this tiny little dog. Um, wandering near a very busy intersection. So I stopped and I grabbed her and um, I knocked on some doors in the neighborhood and no one um, claimed her. They said, oh, we recognize her, but you know, she's not mine. Um, And so I took her to a vet to see if she was microchipped and, you know, reported her as found and no one ever claimed her poor thing, but she was pregnant and skeletal. And so eventually the city said, well, if you don't surrender her, then she's yours. And wow. I couldn't take her to a shelter and risk that she would be euthanized. So she joined our family and she <laughs> is happy and healthy now. And um, yeah, we love her. Oh, that's so fantastic. And uh, she's all like potty trained and everything. No issues. Well, she's got some behavior issues that she <laughs> came with, of course, yeah, but of course. Um, but she's, you know, it's understandable and she's yeah. been, she's been really good. She really has. Oh. So cool. Yeah. When I found, I actually, um, what's your dog's name? Sorry. Her name is Ava. Ava. Oh, lovely. Lovely. Yeah. Um, yeah. I found a puppy at the very start of this year. I only had a two months. Her name's Bubbles. And I, quite, I don't know where that name came from. But <laughs> um, yeah, she uh, had scabies and a whole bunch of other issues as well. And yeah, it just took, oh. took quite a long time to actually help her feel quite comfortable, to help her stop shaking. And yeah, quite a few other issues yeah. came along with it. So I completely understand what you mean by can be there can be quite a few uh sort of texts that are there and it's just yeah i think that just makes them even more lovable right it's just it, it's just it totally fantastic. does you have to yeah. be understanding and patient but it's totally worth it oh man and i, I just honestly i find them so inspiring just the way they can transform yeah. from a traumatized state to um this blissful loving state of a pup it's so beautiful so inspiring. Yeah, yeah. She's definitely found her confidence. Oh, so you know, cool. She, <laughs> yeah, so it's, cool. it's been remarkable to see her kind of, you know, transform from that scared little puppy on the street to, oh, you know, this very confident and brazen dog that she is now. Yeah. Almost a great role model for humans, eh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like yeah. we can make the transformation if we're given the right resources and tools. Yeah. Like you absolutely can. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that I've noticed you talk a lot about is the fact that we can heal, we can actually start to shift mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff. And I notice that you've got um, a big uh, specialization in neurology as well during your bachelor studies, which is fan- so, so fantastic, something I'm very passionate about. And I'd, I also noticed as well, reading your bio, that you did once upon a time have your own struggles with perfectionism. And I think that actually makes uh, someone that can empathize with that experience, uh, makes it so much more powerful when you actually go into uh, understanding and working with someone that does struggle with that. And I do feel like perfectionism is something that I've had a massive struggle with myself. I know I've got a lot of friends that have my, my clients and mm-hmm. it's something I'd love to ask about with you. What, what was the perfectionism around in, in your life? How did that show up in your life? And what sort of issues does that create in other people's lives? Yeah, that's been an interesting journey because my career actually started in 
schizophrenia and psychotic disorders. And then one thing led to another. And now I'm working with mostly people with perfectionism and other sort of high functioning anxiety disorders, which feels really um, consistent with like my own history and where I came from. But for me, my perfectionism was largely academic and professional and then also related to my physical appearance and how I presented myself. And so those were the two things that took up a lot of my focus and where a lot of my anxiety landed. And I didn't understand it as perfectionism when it was at its worst. And that's what I've noticed with a lot of my own clients is they don't necessarily identify themselves as perfectionists. The the idea is like, well, I'm not perfect enough to be a perfectionist, so that can't possibly be it. Um, But when we start kind of talking about it and breaking down the behaviors, they're like, oh yeah, that's, that's totally me. That, that absolutely is what I do. Mm. I see. And what are those sort of behaviors that you identify? Um, Well, it's things like not knowing when to stop and, Mm. you know, the bar always being just above where you can reach and never feeling good enough. And, you know, it's, it's like working hard and, and still feeling like that's never enough. Like you can't ever get a break and nothing is ever good enough for you to pat yourself on the back and tell yourself that you did a good job. And it can show up in a lot of different ways. You know, it can show up in overdoing it, which is what I was doing, not knowing when to stop, or it can be avoiding and procrastinating and kind of this, this fear of failure that keeps you from even engaging. Um, so it can have a lot of different presentations. Yeah, and it sounds like perfectionism uh, being such a core root, it does, yeah, like you said, cause a lot of uh, seeable issues. And there's so many different uh, aspects that this can arise as. So perfectionism being such a strong root, how do we deal with perfectionism? How does one actually come to an understanding of, okay, okay, this is something that I'm struggling with. What can I do about it now, now that I've identified it? Well, yeah, the, the way I start is helping people kind of piece together how perfectionism is showing up in their lives. So first, the first goal we work on is understanding that the standards I've set for myself have become connected to my self-worth. I only see myself as a worthy person when I've accomplished these goals, which by the way, I can't ever actually accomplish. So therefore, I'm never really a worthwhile person. And when our self-worth gets enmeshed with these like achievement-oriented goals, that's where perfectionism starts. And that's where we really start to develop some unhealthy thinking patterns and behaviors. So that's where we start is trying to map all that out and figure out, well, what are the standards that you have for your life? What do you expect from yourself? And what kinds of behaviors and thought patterns have you developed that help you try to meet those standards? Mm. And then we try to start breaking that apart and and building healthier thinking patterns and healthier behaviors that are going to ultimately lead to healthier standards and a separation of the achievement orientation from your self-worth. So that ultimately you can say, I'm a worthwhile person and I want to do well in life, but those are two separate things. Yes. Yes. Okay. So you talked about uh, shifting thinking patterns and creating Mm -hmm. a almost new relationship with these uh, intentions, I think, if you will, rather than expectations of self, uh, of these are my goals, these are where I want to be. However, my uh, sense of worth and sense of value is not attached to that. So how does one actually start to create the separation uh, and actually thicken the line between those two? We do two things in cognitive behavioral therapy. One is we start working on the entire concept of being able to have a thought and not necessarily buy into it as being true. Mm. So I can have the thought that I must look perfect before I can go to work, but that thought isn't necessarily true. So being able to separate those two things is is the first step and recognize that we can have thoughts and we can choose whether we act on those or don't or buy into them or don't. And then secondly, we want to start doing some what we call behavioral experiments So we run some experiments in our lives to see if our thoughts are really true. Mm. So for example, if my fear is something bad will happen if I don't proofread my email three times, then let me try proofreading it twice and run an experiment and see what happens and just test the validity of my thoughts. Mm. And that combination of being a little bit skeptical of what we're thinking, 
And then running an experiment to just gather some data helps us determine what we really should be thinking and what makes most sense with our circumstances and the environment. I love that. I love that. It's such a beautiful breakdown of what they use in Buddhism almost, which is this idea of a concept mm-hmm. of creating space between me and my mind, me and my body, and right. being the observer rather than uh, the one that is in. So yeah, I, I absolutely love that beautiful breakdown. And when it comes to the idea of one, uh, say, like you said, the fear, um, sort of validating a certain fear or validating a certain insecurity that might arise, uh, and actually checking in with it, what are maybe some practical tools that one might do? Is it something like they're noting it down on their phone? Is it they're mentally checking in? Are they writing down on a notepad and um, checking on these thoughts? Or how does that operate normally for you? Yeah, so normally I'll have my clients do a couple of things. Um, so, so one is I'll have them write down on some sort of worksheet or just on yeah the notes app on their phone or in a journal or whatever what they're thinking and what's bothering them and what their concerns are. Because what I've found is that a lot of our thoughts are, first of all, so familiar that we don't even hear them anymore. And second of all, so Mm. automatic that we don't really notice, we don't really put them into words. They're just kind of flashes of, of kind of instinctual feelings. Like you feel insecure, but you don't necessarily put into words I feel insecure because I'm concerned that people might think I look weird or I might say something weird in this situation. So by writing it down, we can get some clarity on what we're actually dealing with. And then we have a little bit of a leg to stand on in determining if that thought holds water or if it's, you know, kind of bogus or somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I see. I see. And then that done over time, of course, of course, consistency is so key to these aspects. Uh, of course, mm-hmm. helps create that space and understanding that, okay, well, even though I'm having this thought, I'm not this thought, this thought isn't true. Uh, and then right. gives that person that ability to actually start to raise that sense of value and detach their value from that thought. Right. And one of the things that cognitive behavioral therapy mm-hmm. um, really values is evidence. Okay. So once I've got the thought kind of nailed down in language, then I'm challenging myself, well, what is the evidence that this thought is true? And what's some contradictory evidence or some evidence that this thought is maybe either untrue or neutral, but trying to look at the entire picture because our brains are naturally going to jump to the negative information or the bad experiences we've had. And why but if is we that? zoom out a little bit. Sorry. Why, why is that that the yeah, minds yeah. do that? It's protective. It's survival, mm. right? Like mm. if I'm you know, walking outside, it doesn't benefit my brain to notice all the good stuff, the birds chirping and the flowers that are blooming. It benefits my survival to notice the animal that's rustling in the bushes, right? Yeah. Or a strange person, right? That seems to be following me. That's mm. going to help my survival. And so our brains are going to naturally focus more on those things. They're not necessarily in our lives now where our survival isn't really being threatened on a daily basis. That's not necessary. And so we have to undo that by deliberately zooming out and saying, oh, well, what is all the other information that I could be considering in this moment? Right. And of course, one of those practices is just being um, firstly becoming more aware of those thoughts and starting to write them down, uh, re uh, coming away from the idea of validating sorry, validating them in a way that actually allows us to create that space. And then you talked about creating action. So uh, is that putting ourselves within the situation that would normally lead to us being triggered and then finding a new path? How does it? Yeah, ultimately, um, we want to do that in kind of a a systematic way. We don't want to necessarily jump to the scariest, crazy situation (laughs) that we can imagine. We want to start with something small. So like my Mm. proofreading example if sending out an email with without any proofreading seems way scary, then like let's go from three to two times and just see what happens. And if two goes well, then eventually we'll go down to just one. And maybe we decide to leave it there if that feels kind of normal. But anxiety, I think a lot of people want to try to think their way out of anxiety and just realize that their thoughts are irrational um, or that they're, you know, kind of extreme. Yeah. But anxiety really needs us to get in the situation and and show our brains mm. that we're safe. Our brains learn best by being shown and yeah. not being told. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting because I've heard a 
a lot of people talk around visualization to prove ourselves, to prove mm-hmm. our brain, uh, certain things to be true or not true. What is your take on visualization when it comes to actually working through a situation by actually allowing the brain to experience that through visualization? Yeah, visualization is a great first step, mm. um, especially for things that might be really scary because it is a, a semi-practice run. Yeah. It's it's visual, and so your brain can kind of get those benefits, but it's not exactly taking all the same risks as actually going out into the world right. and doing some of the things we're afraid of. Plus, a lot of people have anxiety about things that either are impossible um, or would actually be... Um, dangerous to try to to practice with, but it's still sort of irrational to have the the fear. Um, so, for example, you know, we might start with um, with some sort of imaginal or visualization um, kind of treatment for a person who's afraid of turning into a different person right. spontaneously. Right. That's something that can happen with OCD, for example. Well, we can't go out and practice that. Um, Because, you know, that's just impossible, but we can practice it in our brains Mm. and kind of get some of the same benefits of if, you know, as if we had practiced it in real life and we can get that anxiety to sort of um, start to dissipate from that, you know, sort of quasi action experience. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I, I noticed that a couple of your specializations is around cognitive processing therapy and prolonged exposure therapy. So is that what that sort of entails is actually exposing Uh, the person to the stimulus and then helping them change your relationship with it? Yeah. So especially prolonged exposure therapy. So that's a specific therapy developed for trauma. And it was actually developed for, um, by the VA here in the U S for military veterans who have combat trauma and it's entirely that kind of visualization. So if I go to war and I come back with a trauma about some sort of explosion for example, then we're not going to recreate that explosion to just get over the anxiety, right? That would be ridiculous. (laughs) But we we can sort of go back to that moment in our imagination and visualize it as if it's happening again. Mm. And even though that's kind of counterintuitive, the research really shows that that helps our anxiety dissipate. So we still have the memory of what happened, but the anxiety attached to the memory starts to dissipate from that visualization. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So uh, this is really interesting because I hear a lot of people talk about ignorance is bliss. Oh, let me just try to forget. Uh, <laughs> I heard that. Oh, I'm so with you on this. Yeah. <laughs> what is your yeah. take on that? What are what are the uh, costs that can come from people trying to suppress or trying to push away thoughts? It'd be nice if that were something that actually worked. That's one of those things that is intuitive. So the frustrating thing about managing mental health is that the strategies that are intuitive to us are often the ones that keep us stuck. And what it actually takes to move forward and get past a mental health condition is really to do something very counterintuitive or even the opposite of what you would think to do. And that the ignorance is bliss is one of those things. It makes sense intuitively that if I just don't think about the problem, then I'll feel okay. But the reality is that it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. And why is that? Well, we, we don't actually forget, right? Like it's, it's still in our head and you know, we're just sort of bouncing around it as if it's not there, but it, it really is. You can, you can sort of pretend like it's not, but you know it's it's there. So yeah. it's it's not like you're actually ignoring it, um, or that it's actually been suppressed anywhere. It's it's still there, and yeah. so you're actually spending more effort to try to keep it squashed down than if you just <laughs> dealt with it. Yeah, yeah. And what what I've definitely found with my own experiences and. Uh, with my own healing is is, it's almost seems initially like the more painful route to actually do the work however it definitely brings the greatest solution at the end of the day Uh, and that is that sense of freedom Um, and that's an investment for later in my life where I finally get to be free from that struggle rather than having to deal with it like the simmering uh, anxiety in the background constantly and always having that Mm -hmm. feeling and fear that's there um yeah, it's, it's such an interesting thing. So I'd actually love to ask you about this concept of 
comfort how does one get out of comfort because uh, from and yeah. my, my understanding anyway i know that it's very easy to fall back into comfort of actually no i won't do the work because this is easier how does one get really real with the cost that's coming up in their life because of this issue so that they can actually go and get motivation deal with it yeah it's that's one of the toughest parts i think of people's journey to change is getting to that point where the benefits of changing um, outweigh the benefits of staying in your comfort zone. Mm. And you can be in pain psychologically, but the benefits of staying in your comfort zone might still outweigh that. And that's yeah. going to keep you stuck in that comfort zone. Yeah. So watching people kind of get to that point or helping them get to that point where there's a shift and they're finally ready to step out of their comfort zone is is a really important part of their journey because that's, you know, it's obviously it's going to be uncomfortable to ever step out of your comfort zone, but it's a necessary part of ever healing. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So almost uh, helping the brain get really real with the fact that the benefits of this change is going to outweigh the benefits of just staying the same uh, or even looking at the cost, the cost of staying the same is worse than the cost of the change. Yeah. Ultimately, we have to to trust the process a little bit and trust ourselves. And that I think is is difficult for people to get around to. We want certainty that Mm. if I do this hard thing, then it is definitely going to improve my life. Yeah. And unfortunately, we don't have that. We just have a, a, a good guess and, you know, what research has told us and what's worked for other people. But there's never a guarantee that for you as an individual that the hard work is going to pay off. But we do have to sort of go into it with some confidence and faith that if I do the hard work, I'm going to have the same results that all these other people have had. Right, right. And I love that word you used, faith. How does one develop faith? Because I I find that it's definitely such a key thing for someone to actually be able to take that first step of actually, you know, I have faith that this can work. If I put my mind and my focus towards this. Yeah. And I think that's really individual. For some people that faith is going to come, you know, from traditional sources like religion or Mm. spirituality. And for other people, it comes from, you know, me showing them the data, what the research says, you know, it Mm. says that 80% of people, when they do these three things, they experience this outcome and that helps people have faith. And sometimes it's more blind faith and just saying, okay, Hayden, I, I don't know that this is going to work, but I trust you and I have faith in you that you will help me get there. Right. And the best one, the best source of faith, I think, is when people can come and they say, I'm scared out of my mind that this isn't going to work, but I have faith in myself. I've seen myself be able to overcome challenges in the past. And I believe that with the right tools, I can do it too. I have faith in myself that way. Love that. Love that. I've seen you uh, talk a lot around anxiety and uh, faith is definitely a big aspect when it comes to anxiety. Um, How would you define anxiety and how would you define the root of anxiety? Boy, anxiety is, is tough to define because it's got so many different types, different subtypes of anxiety. Yeah. But at its core... Anxiety is about some sort of fear, um, and it can be any sort of fear. It can be a, a phobia, like you're afraid of a specific object or experience, or it can be an internal fear, um, like an insecurity, or it can be it can show up as worrying about all kinds of different things, um, or it can be an OCD kind of thing where you're worried about uncertainty. Um, And you have some fear that some sort of doom situation might happen if you don't do certain things. And then we've got the the trauma kind of anxiety where you have been through a terrible experience that anyone would experience fear and anxiety in. But for you, for some reason, that anxiety didn't naturally dissipate over the next few months. And it kind of got, got stuck in that healing process. So ultimately, the anxiety comes down to some sort of fear and the, the trouble is just that it can attach to really anything. Right. Makes sense. And when it comes down to the fear, of course, the fear has been developed. Um, or do you, is there some research showing that we are born with certain fears? 
we are born with certain fears. Um, and those are mostly the survival fears. So a fear of falling from a high height, um, there seems to be some sort of natural fear of um, dogs or other wild or aggressive animals okay. like that, a fear of um, bleeding to death. So we are sort of born with some natural fears that would be associated with survival. Yeah. But most of the fears that most of us live with on an ordinary basis are constructed by the lives that we live. Yeah. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And so with that being said, I've seen you uh, – write a bit on natural remedies for anxiety. So are there any sort of natural remedies that you'd recommend for people firstly on how to sort of manage the anxiety that's coming up? And then secondly, to actually get to the root of where that's coming from. Well, there are lots of, lots of ways that you can, can manage anxiety um, naturally. The biggest thing to understand in managing anxiety is that the goal is to soothe your nervous system, soothe your brain. Um, because when you have anxiety, your brain is in a state where it's on high alert and it's assuming that something dangerous is happening. And if you know that you're not actually in any sort of physical life-threatening kind of danger, then it's important that you start communicating that to your brain so it can learn that the situation you're in might be concerning but is not dangerous and therefore we don't need to trigger all the alarm bells. So most of the coping skills for anxiety involve that sort of communication with your brain to tell it, hey, you've triggered a false alarm here. You think that we're in danger, we're not. And so we just wanna turn off that alarm system and just go back to normal. Right, And And so that's why things like breathing exercises Mm. can be helpful because when we're uh, when we're in life-threatening danger, it's important that we're taking in a lot of oxygen to fuel our muscles so we can run away or fight. So when we slow our breathing down, we're telling our brain, hey, I don't need all this extra oxygen. I'm safe. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not running away. I'm fine. And your brain says, oh, okay, I get it. We don't need all this oxygen. We're not going anywhere. And it will start to calm down. Right. So interesting. And when it comes to slowing down the breathing, is there a particular tempo that you recommend or a specific way people would breathe? The biggest thing to know is deep breathing, which is often what people think of when they're thinking about breathing exercises for anxiety, is less about taking in more air and more about slowing your breathing down. Right. So you are going to breathe in deeply and, and take in a lot of oxygen. But it's important then to hold it for a second and have a really slow exhale because the exhale is really what we're going for. We don't need to add oxygen to fuel the anxiety. We need to slow it down. Mm. And so pacing your breathing in such a way to have a really long exhale is the most important part. Right. And it doesn't matter whether it's nasal or mouth? Um, Not really. Some people have opinions about, about that. In my opinion, the research doesn't really substantiate, you know, one over the other. The most important thing is that you're kind of slowing the breathing down so that you can get that oxygen and carbon dioxide exchange Mm. regulated back in a way that's going to help calm the anxiety. Love that. Love that. And I've seen you mention about weighted blankets. So there Mm -hmm. are other aspects that people can start to involve in their own lives so that they can help bring in more calm and actually help bring in uh, lower stimulus in the nervous system so they can feel a lot um, a lot more at peace, not so anxious. So things like weighted blankets, are there other things that maybe you recommend and why? Yeah, so the weighted blankets are interesting. Um, we, we know, of course, that like infants, newborn babies like to be swaddled, right? They like to be wrapped up tight. Mm. Um, and that pressure is helpful to them in, in soothing their nervous systems. And for some reason, I guess we thought that just evaporates over time or we grow out of it or something. And we do develop a better ability to regulate our own um, nervous system without that kind of, of pressure over time. But that deep pressure stimulation that you get from a weighted blanket or from a massage or from a, a you know, hearty hug from yeah, someone that you I'm care about. about a hug. Yep, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That pressure is soothing to our nervous system too. So mm. that that's one thing that really helps. 
Um, but you know, there are, there are lots of things like that. So, so the breathing, of course, meditation is evidence-based for, for dealing with anxiety. Um, the weighted blankets have some research support behind them. And then a lot of the other strategies do come down to working with the specific anxious thoughts and running some different um, behavioral experiments. So challenging your anxiety and playing it out in real life to see if it, if it holds water or not. And there are lots of ways that a therapist can kind of help you through that and give you some, you know, specific exercises to change the way you're thinking um, and to, you know, develop behavioral experiments to run. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd actually love to touch on this really briefly around therapy because it's definitely something that I myself, when I first actually started seeking therapy, I was really afraid to, and I was really nervous about the idea. I uh, felt that I should be able to manage this on my own. Um, Mm -hmm. It was really a real big pitfall I fell into around this uh, whole manly culture that's around. And I'd really love you to speak to maybe not even just the manly men, but just anyone that feels that they would love to solve this issue, but they're diminishing therapy in a way that, oh, it doesn't, it didn't work for you in the past or, oh, mm-hmm. uh, it's something that isn't for me or whatnot. It, Cause I'd love to really be a lot more loud about this. This is something that I feel like is so important for people to be able to get over that barrier so they can get the help they need. So what would you say to those people who feel like, oh, um, maybe therapy isn't for me, or, um, if I do that, then I'm not doing it on my own. What would you say to those people? Yeah, that's it's so interesting you brought that up because you know I write these articles for my website every week, and the article I was just writing yesterday, which won't come out for a few months, but it is it is that it's it's my take on why my first therapy experience was a failure for me and why it didn't work. Mm. And one of the conclusions I came to was those kinds of fears you just mentioned. So that fear that I was going to be judged for being there. I felt ashamed for being in therapy because I thought I had failed by letting my life get to the point that I was so anxious. I thought I I had done something wrong to cause that. And therefore I was embarrassed to need help for that sort of thing. And now I understand that the, the truth is that it wasn't my fault that I ended up feeling anxious. Um, that it was, you know, partly just genetics and partly my life experiences and partly developing some thoughts and behaviors that helped me get by, but just also had some negative side effects. And I also have learned since I became a therapist that my therapist isn't judging me for being there. My therapist is really excited that I showed up, is really excited that I am ready to make a change and so understanding that, I think, is really important, that your therapist is, is totally rooting you on. They're your cheerleader, and they are so excited that you're ready to change something. And even if you're not really ready to, to take the actual steps yet, if you're entertaining the idea of making some changes, your therapist is there for that. And they want you to be there, and they want to help you get to the next stage in your recovery. Right, right. And what's your take on uh, traditional talk therapy? Because I've definitely heard mixed things from people that have gone and had experience with that. And there's definitely, of course, massive benefits in being able to talk about it. However, um, I've heard a lot of people have that experience of, I just went and talked about it and felt worse after um, because there's not really any action taken. So what are your thoughts around that? Well, it's complicated, (laughs) but two things. So one is that we know that most of the benefit of any sort of therapy is comes from the relationship that you have with your therapist. Right. So being in the space with a person who is going to listen to you and is going to unconditionally regard you in a positive manner, that helps tremendously. Yeah. But we also know that there are some things we can do on top of that that make an even greater difference. Right. So with talk therapy, that's normally all you have is a great relationship with your therapist and a space to talk things out. But if you add on top of that some specific research-based techniques, now we're really getting somewhere because you have a great relationship with your therapist. That's going to be a major agent of change. But on top of that, you've got some really 
actionable strategies you can use to really heal from it. And that, in my opinion, and based on what the research says, that's really where we need to be focused is, is that type of therapy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I completely resonate with this. That's fantastic. And so, of course, you've mentioned breathing. You've mentioned going to the notepad in a way and actually challenging those thoughts that are coming up. And how can one actually uh, start to, I suppose, implement that in terms of maybe it being in some sort of routine? Is that something that you'd suggest people doing sort of every mm-hmm. night, going, um, sitting down, okay, sort of what sort of um, thoughts that um, came up today or is it something that they do on the go? What's your sort of recommendation in terms of creating a routine around these anxiety remedies in a way? Well, for the thought-based ones, the sooner in time we can sit down with our thoughts, the better. So if I have a thought first thing in the morning and then I don't get around to really dealing with it until the evening, that's good, but it's even better if I can deal with it close to in real time. That's not always possible because of the lives we live. But the closer you can make that, the better. So you can really tap into what you're actually thinking and feeling and not having to, to recreate that in hindsight. Yeah. But one of the things that I recommend for my clients is to experiment with some different strategies and then pick two or three or four that made the most difference and figure out a routine around those. So there are hundreds of things you can do to manage your anxiety, but pick the two or three or four that make the biggest difference for you and really focus on making those a core part of your life. Right. I love that. And I've seen you speak a lot around self-esteem, self-belief. So mm. of course that's definitely a massive thing when it comes to anxiety as well. Um, from my understanding anyway, having a greater sense of self-esteem, self-belief definitely helps and aids around working through anxiety. So what, what are some things that people can do in order to actually start to raise that sense of belief, sense of esteem. It often starts with trying to figure out what's there instead. So sometimes what's there instead of self-esteem, so having, you know, relatively positive thoughts about yourself, sometimes there's just nothingness there. Mm. But a lot of times there's self-criticism there instead. And so part of what we need to do is catch that self-criticism and take that down and then start to put in some some different thoughts and actions that are going to support healthier self-esteem. So we've got two sort of simultaneous goals there of tackling the self-criticism and then building in some some positive self-esteem as well. Right. And what are um what are your thoughts around when it comes to uh say these insecurities uh is when people actually start to look back and review on maybe where these insecurities came from, these anxieties, these traumas, uh, do you think that it's an essential part to healing to be able to actually go back to those moments that triggered the original uh, lack of belief, original anxiety, trauma, or do you think that it's not super necessary, but it would be great if they could go back and reflect and shift the relationship with it? Yeah, the attitude of cognitive behavioral therapy is that the specific moment in time that started our struggle isn't necessarily important to figuring out how to heal from it. Other types of therapy disagree with that. Um, But cognitive behavioral therapy, that's, that's the point is knowing how I ended up here doesn't necessarily tell me how to move forward from here. So it can be, it can be healing for, a person on an individual level to be able to figure that out and piece it together and and map out how they ended up um, thinking about themselves the way they do. But in moving forward, um, it's sort of an ancillary part of the process. Yeah. And it's really interesting you say that. Um, if I'm to reflect on a few things in my own life that sort of came up for me, I know one sort of key thing, I was five years old and this is such a funny weird story. The reason why it's on my mind is because I was talking about it yesterday with a friend and this led to a lot of jealousy in my life. And all it was is I remember so clearly, like so clearly when I was five years old, um, we were playing boys chase girls and (laughs) I was chasing uh, this girl that I liked. And when I finally caught her, she's like, 
um, I wasn't running away from you. I was running away, away from um, this guy and this guy was my friend. Um, and I was so jealous and so gutted at the time. I was so hurt. <laughs> and Aww. I remember, I know, a little five-year-old Kieran. And yes. I just have that such strong memory of it, though, which is crazy. Even though I look back and it, it's so funny to reflect on you at the time that meant uh-huh. everything. And I can see right. so many moments that built up, added layers to that, that added to the jealousy until I finally became aware of it and I could start to unwind mm-hmm. it. But it's crazy that, yeah, even just being aware of that, I'm sure it gave me some sense of understanding, but it didn't actually solve it. Yes. And right. yeah, it was actually, yeah, obviously taking action and being able to um, put myself in those situations more practically and learning to shift those, as you sort of mentioned, has been the biggest thing that has helped. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, that is really interesting. Now, what are some strategies that people can use when they are to, when they do want to finally face these issues that are coming up, be it jealousy, anxiety, whatever that is, and uh, they don't feel safe to do so. So, of course, therapy is definitely a big one. Mm. But say they were doing some work on their own, is there something they can uh, do, something they can remind themselves of, there's certain affirmations that you recommend, um, maybe talk to a friend, whatever that is. What are some sort of strategies that people can use to feel safe when they're working through something? Well, I think it's important to just start small. Yeah. Um, I think sometimes when we think about where we want to end up psychologically and how we want to think about ourselves and what we want to be doing with our lives, that can seem like a really far distance from where we are right now. And it can be intimidating to jump straight there. So if right now, for example, I think, you know, I'm, I'm a bad friend, but I I know that I want to believe that I'm a good friend because I probably deserve that. Jumping all the way there might not feel appropriate. It might not feel true, even if we know it is true. So I think it's important to start small with whatever strategies you're using. So for example, with this strategy of trying to change the way we think about ourselves, like put a little ish on it. So right, like, so if I'm thinking I'm a bad friend, be like, I'm bad-ish, right? Or (laughs) if I'm really trying to to take a step, I'm a good-ish friend, right? But that that ish kind of gives us some wiggle room and that can feel a little bit safer Uh, than going all the way from bad to good. I love that so much. It's actually a strategy I've used around gratitude for myself and the people I work with, which is rather than trying to say, I am grateful for this, which honestly, I've spent Mm -hmm. years trying to practice gratitude. I couldn't feel it until something clicked eventually just after a long time of practicing it but one thing that really helped was the word could instead of am yeah like, oh, i could be grateful for that oh yeah yeah mm-hmm. i could be um yeah the, the yes. sort of subtle progressions there so key i love that ish that i'm i'm stealing i'm using that <laughs> i love that <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah another example of that is that um like with the should thoughts like mm. um i especially retrospectively so i should have known that that was going to happen um changing that should to wish can make Uh, a big difference i wish i had known that that was going to happen or i wish i had you know chosen this action instead of that one i wish i had said this instead of that that feels a little bit more forgiving than the shoulds in there right i see i see i like that Mm -hmm. and yeah okay that makes a lot of sense awesome and I've seen you as well. You've done a lot of work with high performers. So say someone has a certain goal in mind or a certain thing that they really want to create. Uh, and maybe sometimes they fall into this idea of they should create that, um, as we, we just talked about around the shoulds. Uh, how can one step into uh, working towards this goal in an actionable way and be able to do so without needing to add the stress in their lives without needing to add that anxiety or that fear in their lives. What are some things that a high performer can start to do so they can be in the greatest performance possible? Yeah. The, the tough thing about, um, about performers, whether you're an athlete or a musician or an attorney or a surgeon or, or anyone who has a, a job that requires um, some level of performance is that often a certain amount of perfection is required, right? So if you're a surgeon, you don't necessarily have to do everything perfectly, but there are probably some things about (laughs) surgery that need to be done perfectly. You don't have a whole lot of room for error. Mm. Or if you're a pianist, right? And you're playing, you're in a piano competition, it really needs to approximate perfection. 
And so that's where you can see perfectionism really creeping in is with people whose jobs really demand perfection somewhere. And so what I encourage those people to do is break it down and identify the parts of their job or their lives where perfection really is important. And then all the parts where we don't need that level perfection. Maybe we still need, you know, great or we need excellent, but we don't need perfect. And that is important so that we can say, okay, I'm going to focus my energy on this one or two specific things where perfection really matters. And that means I can let go of some of the anxiety and stress about these other things where I want to do well, but I don't have to do them perfectly. And when we can do that, when we can just isolate the perfection to where it's really absolutely necessary, then we can really free up a lot of the other stress and anxiety that's a bit unnecessary. Right. So it's around changing the dialogue internally. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Awesome. Right. Right. It's, it's, it's identifying really where the standard is. Um, so, you know, if a surgeon is doing something, they, they need to get certain parts of it, but stitching a person up, that probably doesn't have to look exactly perfect because they're just stitches, right? It's, it's not that big of a deal. It's going to heal and, and whatever, mm. but certain parts, we don't need to be bursting blood vessels or whatever. <laughs> we need, we just need to separate that. And so, yeah, it's about to yourself, instead of seeing your job or whatever it is as one global thing. It's breaking it down into pieces where you can see, okay, this area is really important that I really focus and, and, and try to approximate perfection. And these other areas I can, can chill out on. But again, my self-worth still isn't dependent on perfection, even in that one area. But yeah. my performance really just does need to be as top-notch as possible. Yeah. And like you said earlier, it's learning to separate those ideas. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. What are some sort of self-care practices that you do for yourself? Because, of course, you have a lot of discussions, but sure, many are heavy as well. Uh, So what do you do for yourself, for your self-care? I do five things every day. Um, So when I was mentioning earlier, pick the two or three or four things that make the biggest difference for you. Um, I have five. And so every single day I meditate for about 10 minutes. I don't go crazy with it, just just 10 minutes. Yeah, is that silent meditation, guided meditation? I just do Headspace. So I have the Headspace app and I just, you know, just do quick and easy that way. Not too complicated. I'm not trying to be a monk or anything. (laughs) I'm just trying to work through anxiety, Mm. right? So, So the bar is pretty low on that. So I meditate. I journal. But really, again, keep it short, five or 10 minutes just to kind of get the the big stuff out. Yeah. I exercise. That makes the biggest impact for me. So I really prioritize that. I make time for a hobby because for me personally, that's something that as a perfectionist, my particular brand of perfectionism never let me have fun. So I make sure that I have at least 10 minutes for something fun every day. And I am super serious about going to bed on time and making sure that I have enough sleep. Yeah. Yeah. And that's definitely been a big one for me. I know. Uh, there's been mm-hmm. a, a world of difference between when I was just getting six hours of sleep a night to now seven and a half is sort yes. of my average now. It's been yes. massive. Yeah. Yes. Those two things. So sleep and exercise yeah. will make the biggest difference for most mental health conditions. If you can do nothing else, if you have no time for anything else or, or no expertise in anything else, if you can get enough sleep and you can exercise on a regular basis, those two things are going to make a monumental difference for most mental health conditions. Yeah. And I I must say as well, that's been a big motivator for me when it came to, I used to be in the fitness industry to trying to uh, uh, become fitter and healthier, trying to reduce the amount that I ate, you know, uh, these certain foods that I didn't want to eat, uh, but I couldn't help myself because they're so delicious. Um, I found the motivator of mental health being a lot more effective for me to go from A to B because I knew that actually, if I start consuming this food in large quantities, this will not serve my mental health and I will feel more anxious yeah. due to all the information going on. I will feel, um, I, it will lead me to feeling uh, not as good as I would like to. Therefore, that's going to be the cost of me eating this food or that's going to be the cost of me not going to the gym and getting some exercise. That's going to be the cost of me not yes. getting to bed at this time. It's definitely been a big motivator for me. Um, so uh, I love the shift of actually 
having that focus of actually, you know, exercise does benefit mental health. It doesn't need to just be mm-hmm. for that six pack or for losing that right. 20 pounds or whatever it is. Yeah. Mm. Right. And that's, that's made a huge difference for me too. And I have to constantly remind myself that that's why I'm exercising. I'm not exercising to look a certain way or to run a, a eight minute mile or yeah. to be able to lift 20 pounds. Like I'm not doing it for any of those things. So it's okay if I'm running and I have to start walking because right. I'm there for my mental health. I'm not there because I'm training for a bodybuilding competition <laughs> or anything else. Like I'm just there to work on my mental health. And so that takes away some of my own perfectionism or, or judgment or self-criticism about my performance while I'm exercising. I'm just there to work on mental health. So it doesn't, it doesn't matter what it looks like. As long as I'm working hard and moving my body, I'm, I'm doing what I need to be doing. Yeah. I love that. I've got a couple of final questions for you. So the first is what can someone do to bring more joy into their lives? Ah, um, one of the biggest things is gratitude. Like you were mentioning Mm. earlier. Um, the research says that a regular gratitude practice makes us 10% happier, which is the same amount as getting a raise at work. Um, but the raise only makes you happy for three months, whereas yeah. gratitude will make you happy forever. Love um, that. So, <laughs> yeah. So that's one thing is make a habit of, of gratitude. And you can do that with a gratitude journal or, um, you know, if prayer is your thing, then do that or doing random acts of kindness um, or whatever sort of your, your brand of that is, but some sort of way to practice gratitude. And, you know, the other, I think, is to make sure that we have activities in our lives that are fulfilling and meaningful. Too many of us go to work from eight to five and come home and eat supper, watch TV and do it again the next day. And there is no joy in that. Most of us aren't working our dream job. So we have to deliberately make time for activities that are going to bring joy to our lives. We have to prioritize that because it, it's not going to just pop up at your desk or in your cubicle. Like you have to go out and find it. You have to create those experiences. So we have to prioritize that. Right. Absolutely love that. One thing in particular that I've actually struggled with a lot up until probably even six to 12 months ago, heck, I still struggle with this every now and again, honestly, which is this idea of receiving love. So um, in the spiritual community, they talk about that as a concept. However, it's just essentially, if it's to really um, talk about in the most basic form, it's just that feeling of when someone compliments me or when someone says, I love you, to actually feel that rather than just dismissing Mm -hmm. it or bouncing it back or being like, oh, thanks, (laughs) and then moving on, actually, but feeling it and acknowledging it. And I know that's a big factor to do with self-esteem but what are some yeah. things that people can do uh, to actually start to acknowledge um, and start to receive love, I suppose? Is the best way to ask. It's, it's exactly what you just described. So that's one of the homework assignments in cognitive processing therapy, which you mentioned earlier. One of the homework assignments is to practice giving and receiving compliments. Wow. And the point of that is, especially on the receiving compliments end, is to internalize that. Let someone compliment you and receive it you know don't try to minimize it or say you know oh no you know i i'm i you know i i didn't really work all that hard on this or it was easy (laughs) you know don't try to minimize it but just say thank you and move on and when we can practice that hearing something kind um about ourselves or you know receiving some sort of kind gesture from someone and get out of the habit of you know, pushing it away or minimizing it or saying it doesn't count, we can retrain our brains to learn that we deserved it. People are being kind, like they like us, they, they thought we deserved it. And we can train ourselves that that's true. We can accept that. Right. I love that. Uh, and second to last thing, uh, around nutrition, do you, th- uh, do you feel that there's a really key component here and are there any recommendations around that? Nutrition, it it is seeming that that plays a role. Um, Certainly, we know that this is a budding area of research. And so I admittedly don't know it well. But what we are learning is that being appropriately nourished, meaning not malnourished, is important in managing our mental health. Um, So part of that 
comes because all of the, the chemicals we think about as being involved in managing mental health, so things like serotonin and dopamine, they come from what we eat. Yeah. So if we are not eating the right foods to generate the precursors to those chemicals, then we're going to be depleted. And that's even true if you're taking an antidepressant. Yeah. So for example, if you're taking an SSRI, that medication doesn't it doesn't give you serotonin. What it does is it lets your body recycle and reuse the serotonin it already has. Right. So if you're not eating the right foods to generate serotonin on your own, then your antidepressant might not be doing all that much. Right. Um, so it is important that we're eating healthy food so that we can generate those sorts of chemicals that are going to set us up for you know, having all of the fuel that we need to feel good and, and to do well. That makes so much sense. And uh, this does add one more question, actually, on top of what I was already going to ask, which is, what is your take on uh, SSRIs around uh, how easily they're prescribed nowadays? Because uh, I know for myself, uh, I was offered SSRIs at, um, when I went to see the doctor uh, when I was a little, a little bit younger. And this is something that I actually rejected out of pride. I, when I reflect on it now, mm -hmm. I am glad that I did. However, I know that they absolutely have massive importance and should not be yeah. ever demonized. And I think they should be praised for the fact that someone is willing to take them. However, I feel like there's just such a, um, a missing link between the, um, around the education around them rather than them being some magic pill, rather offering almost right. a sense of a platform so that they can start to work on the thoughts right. and the um, concepts and the traumas that have been uh, actually creating the anxiety rather than just looking at the symptom. And what, what is your, what are your thoughts around that and how people can, uh, do you have any uh, recommendations around how people can start to work work through uh, their um, if they're on medication, say? Right. Yeah. The what the research tells us um, consistently for most mental health conditions is that the people who have the most improvement are the people who are on a combination of medication and therapy. Right that combination is superior to either alone. Yeah. Unfortunately, at least here in the US, um, if you go to your regular physician and complain of symptoms of depression or anxiety, you're likely to walk out with a prescription for a medication, but not a referral to a therapist. Yeah, same um, And that's a, that's a real issue. So yeah. I've even had clients um, who've told me, I went to my doctor and asked specifically for a referral to a therapist. And instead, I walked out with a prescription um, for Zoloft or Prozac or yeah. something. And they were very disappointed in that. So, so I do think that that's, that's an issue. And, and you know, there are lots of reasons that that is that, why that is the case, why um, the physicians are, are prescribing a medication without also a referral to therapy. Um, but you're right, too that there also is a lack of education about the purpose and the role of medication in your overall recovery. Um, the medication, you're right, is intended to be a tool to help you then figure out how you're going to adjust your lifestyle in a way that's going to be healthier for you. It gives you a boost so you can start to work through your thoughts. You can run some behavioral experiments. It gives you a little bit of a head start so you can make those changes. And then ultimately, the idea is to keep going with those changes you've made and eventually remove the medication when you don't mm. need that boost anymore. Love that so much. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, last question. What heals you? Oh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think I think the, the most healing thing is relationships. Oh, right? Having that. people in our lives that add value, that remind us of our purpose, remind us of our value. Relationships, I think, are, are the biggest healing factor for me and for most people. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Hayden, thank you so much for coming on. This has been absolutely amazing. I've honestly taken a lot away myself. Uh, now, for those listening, I would highly, highly encourage you to follow Dr. Hayden. Uh, you can find her on Instagram. She's got a website. Uh, do you mind actually just um, give, uh, letting them know where they can find you exactly? Yeah. So on Instagram, I'm at Hayden Finch, PhD. Um, and my website is called Master Your Mental Health. So it, it's at masteryourmh.com. 
And there you can find links to all the articles that I post every week. I've got tons of articles there on overcoming anxiety, on coping skills. I give you worksheets so you can put them into action. I give you lots of tips and strategies. Um, so you can find all of that there at MasterYourMH.com. And I've got a workbook specifically for self-criticism because I found that that's really where people were struggling the most. Mm. Um, so it's a four-step, step-by-step how to overcome self-criticism. I'll walk you through it, give you tons of evidence-based strategies for working through self-criticism. Um, you can find that specifically at MasterYourMH.com slash Critic Workbook. Love that. Guys, if you if you aren't already looking on Instagram and on her website, okay, I highly recommend that you do that. Uh, Dr. Hayden does a has done a lot of work and um, over the last few years around really helping a lot of people to start to work through their anxiety and really work through the, this uh, idea of low self esteem, low self belief. So if you feel that this is something you want to learn more about, please go and check her out on Instagram on her website and absolutely give that workbook a try. Now, if you did find that you got much from this, and I'm pretty sure that you did, because <laughs> I know I did, please subscribe to this podcast and give it a rating as well, as doing that actually allows us to start to reach more people. If you feel that there is someone in your life that maybe is struggling with some of the things that we've just uh, talked about and covered, then please do them a favor and, and share this with them. Honestly, this this is the sort of stuff that I really wish I knew when I was going through these deeper struggles. And it would have honestly changed my world if someone had shared this sort of information with me. So um, it would really mean the world to me and I'm sure to the person that might be struggling uh, if you were willing to step into that. Uh, other than that, guys, stay blessed, much love, and uh, thanks for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Take care. Singing on the